Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of AdvaMed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Tom Poland, chairman, president, and CEO of Becton Dickinson, also known as BD. Tom started with BD in 1999, then spent some time with Baxter Pharmaceuticals, and then returned to BD in 2009 as president of BD Pre-Analytical Systems. In that role, Tom spearheaded two major acquisitions in 2015 and 2017, and then was named president, CEO, and chairman of BD in 2020. He did his undergrad at Salisbury University in Maryland and holds an MBA from the Johns Hopkins University. All right, Tom, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you. Hey, Scott, it's great great to be here. Great to talk to you again. I like to start off these shows to give the listener a little bit of insight into who the person is behind the CEO role. And so if we can, Tom, let's let's start by talking about where you're from, where you grew up, and, and a little bit of your background. I grew up, Scott, certainly grew up in not in a track to be a CEO. I grew up on a dirt road in the middle of farmland on the eastern shore of Maryland, a small town of, uh, I think I had a, less than 100 people in my graduating high school class. I was the first person in my, my family to graduate from college. I ended up, we can talk about kind of the journey that led me into this role, but it certainly was not. I spent my my summers just running around in, in the woods in the wilderness and and, and working pretty much from age of 13 in farms and associated spots up until I got to college. So, so your first job was not in med tech. It was uh, baling hay and doing farm work then, huh? Exactly what it was. It was chasing, right. tractor, which was good, good hard work. I, I still attribute that to work ethic that I keep today. I was doing work in, in that and a cannery during high school summers that uh, the benefit of working in a cannery was it was 80 hour weeks. You got double time for the next 40 hours. That certainly taught putting in long hours and working with people who put in a lot of hard work. So Yeah, that's great to hear. I, I grew up in a small town too, worked a lot when I was 13, 14 years old. I had a full-time job pretty much. And you're right, you learn so much about work ethic and respecting the people you work with regardless of their job, right? Because you've seen the value of that uh, to a family and what the work ethic really means. Uh, I still remember just sitting around, just chatting over lunch breaks, you know, with uh, folks of all different backgrounds at spots like the one I described. And, and again, you just get to respect uh, a wide variety of people for a lot of different reasons. You left that town and went to Johns Hopkins, I think, right? Is that Was that undergrad or, and graduate school? Graduate school. And that was, so my uh, undergraduate was a focus in medical technology. And I actually went to work at Johns Hopkins in, in the okay. lab doing research and then joined a startup company out of the, the Bay Area. That was right during the dot-com boom. And they're recruiting for technical experts and, and actually were recruiting at Hopkins. And so I joined this couple, it was less than 10 people in the company at that time, venture-backed company in the diagnostic space. Had an opportunity to very quickly, when there's five, 10 people in a company, you do a little bit of everything. So what right. was a technical role quickly became a technical sales fix the instrument, write clinical protocols, get studies published. 
and started doing that in the U.S., ended up going and living in Japan for a year, getting the business set up there. I was the only person in Japan for the whole company. So you get to wow. do everything. When did that wow. in Europe for a bit, getting it going there, spent time in Latin America, getting the business going there. And we grew it up, but uh, not to a huge, not to a large company, still just uh, maybe a, between 100 and 200 folks. And then we sold the company to BD, which is how I came to BD. Oh, wow. Wow. That's oh. great. That's great. Uh, what an experience. My understanding is also, Tom, maybe you mentioned this, you're the first one to graduate college from your family. Is that right? I am. My father and my mother were in college, which were, would have been the first folks, but then I came along and uh, they, they switched their plans and ended up both dropping out of college to focus on this sudden me that just joined into the world right. that they had to care for. So, Yeah, what an amazing journey from a small town, the first to go to college, joining a startup company taking that to a place where it could be acquired by BD and then eventually becoming the CEO of a company like BD. That is an amazing American success story. Yeah, and as BD has gone from $7 billion to $20 billion over the last seven years, primarily through acquiring companies, it's been fun to be able to tell new associates from the acquired companies, I joined the same way you did. And, and so you've got great potential here. What has that experience running and leading a startup company taught you about looking at and acquiring companies in and around the med tech space that would be instructive? You know, it, what's funny, uh, I have to tell you this story. I often share this story. Again, when we acquire organizations, we've gotten much, much better at acquiring companies than we did when they acquired us. And that's something I'm proud of at BD. So when, it's, it's, this is funny, is that when we were acquired, the startup company, the policy at BD was, in this case, they gave everyone in the company a pink slip. And so I had a pink slip from BD within 24 wow. hours of them acquiring the company. And everyone did. And it was, you have 60 days to find a job in BD. And if you don't, here's your package. And you're, you know, this, is, this is what's going to happen. And so I ended up uh, thinking, well, let me see if there's an opportunity in BD. And I ended up networking in BD and, and finding a role in the diagnostic business. I had a pink slip from the company. Now we've gotten much better at assessing talent, and it's funny some of the uh, the same folks that uh, that were with me at the startup company. One has has been one of our most prolific R and D leaders in our bioscience business, and people who mm. have really just made a tremendous impact not only on the company but on society came from this startup company and, and are still with BD. But they also started their journey with the company the same way. And so they had some right. grit to find a way, stick with the, the organization. And, and again, we've gotten much, much better at uh, onboarding talent and, and making sure that we retain talent as we've, we've moved forward. Yeah. Who was the CEO at BD when you were acquired? Uh, that would have been Ed Ludwig at the time. Okay. Okay. And then Vince followed him into the job. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's who I've worked with mostly, Ed, but Ed, uh, Vince, but Ed and I remain close friends as well. Yeah. What an incredible time, Tom, to take over a company like BD as CEO. It wasn't a normal transition. It may have been normal inside the company, but in the history of the planet, to take over a company like BD just as we were all getting hit by a pandemic that none of us had ever experienced before. What a transition that must have been for you. How did you manage your way through that initially? And then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the lessons you learned. Yeah, Scott, so, so I took over the CEO role essentially right at the start of February last right. year, right within a month or so of the pandemic hitting. And I, I still recall very clearly the first early signs just a, a week or so after 
where I'd gotten a call and, and had seen a video actually, or a, a photograph sent by our team in China. And it was a story that I was, that our team in China had shared of one of our service engineers pulling one of our molecular instruments down the street and have had just walked several miles past barricades into the city of Wuhan to deliver an instrument for testing mm. for what was this new term uh, and a new new thing that everyone was learning about called COVID-19. And I remember thinking at that point, I've never seen this before. I've never seen where someone has to walk that, you know, that and we had right. celebrated that that leader for fantastic customer service and dedication. Literally he couldn't drive and so he got out and he walked several miles to make sure our technology got to the uh, to the laboratory where it was needed and ultimately was being used there in Wuhan for COVID testing. And then within 45 days of starting the role, I was was at my, my house and, and about 11 o'clock at night, I got a call from the White House and they said, can you be here at eight o'clock tomorrow morning? Yeah. I wasn't expecting to get that call this early into the tenure of the role. And very quickly, we were focused heads down on ramping up and, and creating diagnostic tests, molecular tests, ramping up collection swab production. Um, 90% of all ICU patients um, are treated with with our devices uh, in their care. And so obviously, as the ICUs began to fill around the world, and we saw this first starting in Europe, we, we focused our efforts there. And we can talk about that further. And, and now we're, we're deeply involved in administering billions of doses of vaccines around the world. So I, I re- it's particularly in the first few months after I took over the role as the world had really changed, many folks would would come up and they'd say, wow, Tom, what a tough time to be taking over as, as CEO. There's a lot of tough choices that have to get, get made and, and tough decisions. And, and uh, my response was always, I can't imagine a better time. We got into this, I and, and many of my colleagues at BD and, and colleagues in the industry, we got into healthcare because we have a a passion about making a difference. And so certainly to be able to lead one of the leaders in, in medical technology, 70,000 plus associates and, and rally all of our talent and technologies and capabilities to help impact, you know, one of the greatest healthcare challenges, the greatest healthcare challenge of our time has been a blessing to be able to, to do that. And we're really proud of the impact that BD's made. Yeah, well, we're not through the pandemic completely, but it does feel like we're getting to a better place. And I imagine looking back now how proud you are of those 70,000 employees and what they went through to make sure that this pandemic was managed and controlled and now people are getting vaccines. That's an incredible set of heroes that work and live inside the BD offices. And we continue, as you said, Scott, it's it's stabilized in some geographies, but and every day I was on the phone with our Asia team this morning, there's still you know very serious outbreaks going on in many parts of the world that we're right, continue to be on the front lines. It is, as I often hear folks from BD say, the BD way. Let me just ask you about that, the history of that phrase, where it came from, and what does that mean to you now that you have taken over as, C- as CEO? What is the BD way? Yeah. So the, the BD way is something that we put in place as I became CEO, that was really as we stepped back and said, what are the values and the cultural priorities that we want to focus on? And there's really three aspects of the BD way. It is exactly the core values that we hold dear as an organization. And so some examples of that would be the fundamental values of we do what's right. 
we are accountable. We learn and improve every day and, and we help each other be great, which is one of my favorites. We help right. each other be great, which is something that you think about for a minute. And if everyone's doing that in an organization, you get some great outcomes. Um, the second piece of the BD way is, is how we think, our mindset in the organization. And that's really oriented around a growth mindset, a speak up mindset. When you see an issue, you raise it. The best way to impact our industry is to really know patients and customers, and we view challenges and opportunities as opportunities to grow and improve. And then the third part of the BD way is, so if it's our core values and our mindset, the third way is how we lead. And you don't have to be a leader to follow that. It's how we lead ourselves and and how we also lead our teams. And that's really from a servant leadership perspective is what we're focused on there. And so that's how we remove obstacles and empower others, how we deliver results that matter. And we focus on on those few things that matter and how we have the courage to iterate and, and try new things and embrace change. And so that's really what makes up the BD way, right? How we want our 70,000 associates, the set of core values that we all share in common, the way that we think from a growth mindset and how we lead from a servant leadership perspective. Mm-hmm. Can we walk back just a minute, Tom, to you mentioned earlier, a couple months into the job, you get a call from the White House and you're asked to show up at a press conference kind of at the last minute. I remember the TV was sort of always on at that time in those days. And I looked up and I saw you on the stage, I think in the Rose Garden or outside outside the White House. Tell us a little bit about that story, what that was like for you in the middle of this pandemic to get that call and know that you were going to be on stage representing those 70,000 associates. First off, it was, I was really very impressed by the way that our country came together to want to serve as a community right. against the pandemic. So it was not only members of the government that were there together from the president and the vice president and uh, Dr. Fauci and others who were, we were together for many hours that day, but CEOs from across industries, from Walmart to CVS to diagnostic uh, organizations like Quest, the diagnostic manufacturers and medical device manufacturers such as ourselves, and, and everyone looking at immediately, what can we do to help? We have stores, we have parking lots, they're available. What do we do? How can we be of help? We have manufacturing capabilities and technology capabilities. How can we help You know, from our perspective? And what stood out to me was there was no focus other than what was the best uh, in the interest of the nation and in the interest of, of patients and society at the end of the day. And we had really strong, robust discussions and a series of actions came from that. I would say that at the start of a pandemic at that point, there was optimism that we were going to be able to work through this. And it's a terrible thing, the pandemic. But I think we did see the way that we ended up working through it at the end of the day, we are working through it as as a world, as a globe, is an unprecedented level of public and private partnerships where governments are, are... paving the way in collaboration with organizations who are bringing their technologies, inventiveness, the talent and capabilities of production and manufacturing that they have to do things like develop vaccines in record time. Right. Or for us, it normally takes us three years to develop and launch a new diagnostic test. We did it in three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we scaled manufacturing at unprecedented levels because we had the support to do things differently from governments around the world. And so I think that that was the first glimpse of that for me was this is going to be different, a way of working together with governments and and private organizations to make a difference here. Yeah. 
leading an organization through this period of time, you had some tough decisions I'm sure you had to make. And not just one or two decisions. I assume that there were a lot of tough decisions you had to, had to make through throughout the pandemic. As you reflect back on some of the lessons learned, were there a was there a decision or two that you felt were now looking back were just critical to the success that you had in in fighting this pandemic and producing and the diagnostics and all the work that you did? Yeah, Scott, there there were a couple, and I'd say maybe start with probably the most fundamental core. Uh, decision that we made, which was right at the start, is we we knew that we had tough decisions to make. Some of our businesses were going up because of the pandemic, like demand for diagnostics, demand for infusion products and devices used in the ICU and products used to inject vaccines we knew would eventually be going up. But at the same time, during the height of the pandemic, other devices that we made that were used to do, for example, hernia surgeries, mm. weren't going into the hospital to have hernia surgeries or to get their pap test for cervical right. cancer screening or to do breast cancer screening, all solutions that we have. That, that testing had stopped as people were, were staying away and staying home. And so you know, we knew that we were going to have to make decisions to ramp up in certain areas at unprecedented rates, but also turn things off to stop right. producing in other areas. And so we set a principle right from the start that we were going to do this and work through the, this pandemic and the impact it was going to have on the company as a team, meaning we didn't want to let people go. Right. Uh, that. And so that, that became a, by the fact that we were focused there first, we communicated that principle to the organization. There could be challenging times as we go through this. We don't know what the future holds, but we're going to work through this as a team. And we did that right? as we made some tough decisions and had to do furloughs, for example, to stop producing, for example, hernia mesh because yeah. it would have just piled up on the shelf. We made decisions that normally, for example, when we furlough people going on unemployment here, we said we're going to have to shut down this plant for a couple months, but we're going to pay everyone's medical benefits and mm. co pays during that period in time. We're going to take again, we're going to get this thing through together. So I'm going to take a 50% pay cut. Every member of my team is going to take half of what I took. So the leadership team is going to take a 25% pay cut. Everyone who reports to the member of a, the leadership team is going to take a half of that. So a 12%. And then we kept up until the director level, which was a 5% pay cut. But essentially, we doubled it at every yeah. level as you move through the organization. Again, getting through this together and making some decisions. We made some decisions to hold on 401k for everyone contributions right. for a short period of time, a quarter or two, and then we reinstituted it immediately. But again, that was done in the spirit to get through this as an organization without having to, to do layoffs, which we did. And, and I think that that allowed people to focus on what we right. had to make happen, while at the same time also communicating very clearly, because keep in mind for us, two thirds of our associates never stopped coming into work during the pandemic. Yeah. And so while there was lots of news and everywhere you looked was around isolating and staying at home, we continued to ask two thirds of our associates, we need you to keep coming in because right. patients are going in the hospital. And if we stop coming into work, we we stop care right? because of the criticality of our, our devices. And so I couldn't be more proud in the selflessness of our associates who we consider certainly heroes that were supporting the frontline healthcare workers and coming in every day, we're obviously very focused in ensuring their safety. And we made that very clear. We made significant investments in that right from the start. 
And so th- those were some core principles, Scott. But then, yeah. of course, we had some some rapid decisions to make around ramping up capacity, as an example. So we, we made, uh, I'll share a story on the diagnostic side, but we did this very similar type of situation around products used in the ICU or, or used for vaccinating you know, people, the vaccine delivery devices. So we've been a leader in flu and, and uh, infectious disease rapid testing for many years. We have a platform called Veritor, which is a 15-minute rapid test. People typically use it to test for strep throat or the flu. We had about 25,000 of these small couple hundred dollar instruments, and we would make about 8 million tests a year to test for like flu and strep. 8 million tests a year, maybe in a really strong flu season, 10 million tests. And it typically took us about three years to develop a new test on that platform. So when COVID pandemic started and we first launched a molecular test, we said, wow, a 15 minute test because suddenly it was taking two weeks or more to get a molecular yeah. test. We said, yeah. we, we have a technology that we could get people a result in 15 minutes. And uh, on a platform that costs $200 and a test that costs you know, $20. Right. And that can be a game changer. So we put all of our efforts behind that. And I still remember the first meeting and the team came in and, and we said, okay, we need to develop this in rapid time. We said, how long? It only takes us three years. Right. Well, when does the world need it? Yesterday. Yeah. Okay. How about 90 days? Start the launch 90 days. And right. it's a hush in the room. And folks said, okay, what do we have to do to make that happen? A book should be written on this because at the end of the day, we ended up, the first thing was you got to find antibodies. Right. Because to do this test, you have an after antibody that connects to the COVID virus in a high affinity and then right. we can detect that that event happened, and then we can call the test positive or negative that they have the COVID virus. And so we suddenly went on a hunt around the world. We were working with DARPA. We were working with universities in Europe, in Asia, with governments around the world who had come up with antibodies because they were just being developed. And testing, we set up a screening center in North Carolina, and we were taking the BD jet and flying it up literally around the world to grab vials of antibodies and rush them to mm. our our screening center in North Carolina. And the team, I, I remember we'd get on a call every day at the end of the day. Okay, what do we need to do next? Well, we've found an antibody in Belgium. Okay, how long is FedEx saying they can get it here? Three days. Okay, we're gonna have the BD plane, go get it. It's gonna be here tomorrow. And I still remember the R&D team, those actions of this became a BD initiative. This wasn't a diagnostic business unit initiative. It was every resource and asset that the company had was focused on solving this problem. And that sent a very clear message across the organization and a sense of pride that that was the first glimpse. I remember an R&D leader told me afterwards, when we started seeing those actions taken, we started realizing we can do this in in this time. And it got a sense of pride and optimism in that. In a similar vein, we normally in a process, when you find an antibody that's promising, the test for you to do the original validation, it may cost you $1,000, $5,000 to get a certain quantity of that antibody. Yeah. And then you got to buy a tank of it to actually start producing. And, and to make that tank can take an extra month or two. So when we found promising antibodies, again, on those evening meetings, we said, do you think this is promising? Yes. Okay. We're going to go ahead and order those test samples. Well, if it works, how long is it going to take? If it works, it's going to take two weeks to figure out if it works. Well, right. and it's going to be another month. Let's go ahead and order the big quantity now. 
Right. That's going to cost us a million dollars. We would normally never do that because we're going to have to literally throw it away if it doesn't work. And we said, no, we take the risk. Two weeks matters here. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We'll risk a million dollars on this. Right. And we threw away several million dollars of antibodies that didn't work. But at the end of the day, because we did that, we ended up being able to get the test out faster than we would have if we hadn't have taken that risk. My lessons on that were the ability to focus on a program and what you can do when there's true focus and you pull the yep. resources of the organization, not just a right. business unit, but the entire organization. Another example of that was we looked across the company and we took the best people from across the company. Whether or not they had experience in diagnostics was secondary. Obviously, we needed that on the R&D side. But for example, the best program manager happened to be a very senior general manager of our pharmaceutical business right. in Europe. In that case, he was sitting at, in France having a glass of wine with his wife on a Friday evening. And I called him and said, look, you're obviously aware of what's going on. We're focused on developing a rapid test in 90 days. It's never been done. And I need our best program leader. And that happens to be you in the company. And so I'm wondering, would you consider moving for some period of time until we get this figured out, move to San Diego with you and your wife? And he says, okay, Tom, I appreciate that. I'm obviously running a big billion dollar plus business, but there's nothing more important than this to the company. Let me consider it and, and talk to my wife. She's actually right sitting here next to me. We're having a glass of wine on a nice cafe mm. in France. Can you let me know when, when should I tell her we would be there? And I said, well, you know, it, it's Friday evening. I'm thinking I'll have the plane to pick you up on Sunday and <laughs> you will be there uh, Monday morning in San Diego. Uh, to get started. And he says, yeah. okay, you're serious. Yeah. Uh, so I am serious. And he called me back within a couple hours and said, we're in. And we had wow. to come up that Sunday. I only share that as an example of we truly brought the best of the company to bear on that. We pulled people out of retirement on the R&D side. Mm. When we said, you know, what do you need on pay? They stopped me in my tracks on the weekend on a discussion we had and said, I don't want to talk about that, Tom. This is something that yeah. we can change the course of this pandemic. We just want to make an impact. And so I think bringing the best and the, the whole power of the company. And then the next thing was taking the risk off the team. Mm. Right? So when the team right. saw, I'm not going to be held accountable for throwing away that antibody. We're having that discussion and we're taking that bet at the company level, right? The executive team's taking that risk, not, not us. We're, we're not going to, there's no consequence. We're, we're, our, our focus is getting the right result in the right time and making the impact. And that really, I think that was a learning to see the power of that and just how that unlocked the best in people to do what they can do. And you know, often in, in business, there's those things that are on people's minds that are slowing them down or, or causing second guesses on taking risks. And here in the pandemic, you saw that change and you saw yeah. us achieve things that were unprecedented in the past. So yeah. a lot of lessons. I often get our R&D leaders saying, you know, Tom, if we can run every program like we ran, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can appreciate that. No, that's not yeah. pragmatic in yeah. all cases, but there's some truth to that. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So. You also had to have government officials willing to do and work with you in a way that was very different than they had in the past, right? Once your team had done all that work, gotten the information, the technology together as they needed it, once you got to that point, you had to get the FDA to buy into it as well, and which you said would normally take three years uh, on a test. In this case, it took three months. That collaboration had to be central to finally getting that test to market, right? Absolutely. And I have to give huge kudos 
to to how the the government uh, and governments around the world and certainly in the U.S. the FDA collaborated in new ways. Um, in that example, what would have been a several months or up to a year review process was a matter of days or less. Yeah. Uh, it was very very quick turnaround time and a very collaborative approach that the FDA took to help bring technologies and making sure that they were safe, making sure that they were effective, but working extremely collaboratively with industry to do that. Um, And that continued beyond just getting new products to market. We saw that as a a large scale global manufacturer. I think we make more medical devices than any other company on the planet. We make nearly 50 billion medical devices a year. You can imagine when there were shutdowns happening around the world, we have tens of thousands of suppliers. And many, we do have many of our suppliers in certain geographies they're not may not be primarily medical device suppliers. Maybe they make a battery or they make a yeah. component of a, or a raw material that goes into our devices. But maybe 95% of their products are used in the automobile industry or in sporting industry or some other event that government said, no, you have to send your employees home. You're not allowed to operate during the peak of the pandemic. And we partnered with the State Department and with embassies around the world to be able to say, they actually produce a life-saving a component that's used in a life-saving medical device that's essential to treating patients in the pandemic. And again, I think that's uh, positive for humanity when in literally every one of those cases, governments around the world supported keeping those suppliers open and gave them yeah. exceptions to make sure that they continued to produce those materials that were used in life-saving devices. And to have that coordinated across the number of incidences that that happened and for them to all work out in the positive for us to be able to keep all of what we didn't we never went down in any of our manufacturing sites because of shortages um, because yeah. of that we we're able to keep our supply chains open that says a lot but that wasn't done just by us of course that was done through great work of our suppliers and great work of governments um, in helping support that it's an amazing success story of how the private sector rallied to a cause that was greater than all of us right and it also further clarified the importance of a comprehensive supply chain management system in the medical technology space, because without that, we never would have been able to accomplish what we'd have, we accomplished during this period of time. And having government leaders understand that and collaborate with us to get to solutions was just a tremendous lesson for us, I think, going forward, for sure. Scott, we actually put in a, a new informatics tool and approach that during the pandemic, because we needed to understand who were suppliers of suppliers of suppliers, we were able to get down to what we call N-level suppliers. So if our finished good is is level A, supplier of who makes the component going in, yeah. being B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, all the way to N of the sub-suppliers of multiple sub-suppliers, yeah. we track that back in our supply chain so that we could identify where there could be vulnerabilities. And, and again, our procurement team and partners that we had in that were, just did an amazing job. And that, that'll, that's obviously beneficial for us going forward, that new capability that we built and accelerated building it because of the pandemic, you know, helps us create supply chain robustness for right. medical devices permanently going forward. Yeah, Tom, are you starting to feel a return to normalcy inside your company and then more globally as well? I mean, you're starting to see a good trend from a public health standpoint on the numbers. But from a business operation standpoint, are you feeling like we're getting closer to being back where we were before we were hit with this? 
So Scott, as you said, it, it varies around the world as a global company. There are still areas in Latin America, parts of Asia, where, where the pandemic is still very severe. Certainly, as we think about in the U.S., that sense of returning to a new normalcy is, is true. Certainly, as we think about the customers, our, our providers and, and patients are returning to healthcare. They're returning, getting back in, starting to get right. screening done, which is important. That's something we still do worry about and something we, we encourage very strongly is people stop getting the routine screening. Right. We could see that as, as a leader in cervical cancer screening and breast cancer screening and, and products used for blood draws to get your normal blood work done for your checkups. People stopped doing that during the pandemic. And right. That's something that is important for people to get back to so that there's not longer term consequences of people presenting with more severe late stage cancer, as an example, or later stage diseases, because it wasn't detected early because yeah. they skipped that. But um, in, in terms of returning to, to normal in the company, again, two thirds of our associates never stopped. Our, our sales teams are back in with customers now. We've announced coming back in to the offices in many locations. I've been back in for a while. It's also not returning to the way things were. I often say, you know, the world just went through the largest forced experiment in new ways of working. Yeah. That yeah. is not voluntary. <laughs> it was not a voluntary experiment. Right. And we learned a couple of things from the experiment. We learned that there are better ways of working than there were in 2019, right? Yeah. That we don't need to be sitting in meeting rooms together all the time, right? That there's more effective ways that we can use technology. But we also learned in that experiment that we don't want to stay in 2020, that there are right. benefits of being in person, solving complex problems, building your durable culture, apprenticeship and, and mentorship, I think are better done in person. And so as, as we're coming back into the office, we're doing it in a hybrid environment. We're spending a lot of time focused on making sure people don't just come back in, right? If people come back in and they're in a meeting room and they're staring at their cell phone, we've failed. Where there's not complex problem solving to be had, more updates, check-ins, do that when you're working from home on Teams. Right. We want to be in the office problem solving in groups, working through complex issues, engaging with one another, mentoring, coaching. And so we're focused on helping make sure that we do that. We also recognize the experiment is not done. So we're clear as we've put out some policies, yeah. for example, that we're going to start coming back for a certain number of days this summer, that we don't know all the answers and we're going to stay nimble and we're going to stay agile. We're one of our BD way attributes is approach things with a growth mindset. And so we're going to keep an open mindset. So continue to learn from this experiment on how we can work most effectively to continue to advance our strategy and our purpose. Yeah. yeah. So shifting away from uh, COVID-19 for a minute and just looking more broadly about the future of MedTech and BD both, but what are the promising trends you think broadly for MedTech in the future? And what does the future look like for BD, Tom? Yeah. It's an extremely exciting time for med tech. I, I often say this is the most dynamic time in the most consequential industry, period. There's lots of cool industries, electronic industries, electric cars. I mean, there's a right. lot of amazing technology out there today. But at the end of the day, and I think that became very clear with the pandemic, there's no industry that matters more to anyone mm. on the planet when they or a loved one are sick than the healthcare industry. 
and uh, what we do and, and what our, our customers do. And so why I say it's the most consequential industry and it's the most dynamic time. We certainly saw that live with the pandemic, but it's also right. the most dynamic time because there's unprecedented new technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, informatics, material science that are converging today to really create a, a leap forward in how technology can improve and save lives. And so for us at BD, we're really focused on three major innovation areas that support long-term durable trends in healthcare and, and large unmet needs. And so the first is we're focused on applying robotics, artificial intelligence, and informatics to improve fundamental healthcare processes, right? So we're bringing large-scale robotics and automation to fully automate a microbiology laboratory, as an example, right? We're bringing new technology and artificial intelligence to make medication delivery safer and more effective. We're doing the same thing in, in other areas. The second major area of focus for us from an innovation perspective is enabling the care shift to mm -hmm. where patients want to be treated. And that really gets to moving care from the hospital into non-acute settings and enabling that, whether or not that's in a medical home or in the home itself, into a, a retail center, into a long-term care facility, into an ambulatory surgery center. But we're focused on bringing new technologies um, that enable that care shift. And so whether or not it's delivering medications and infusions in your home, enabling things like dialysis in home, a leader in dialysis access, point of care diagnostics, obviously something that, that uh, right. we've had a big role in for enabling procedures and, and people to care for themselves, for example, with urinary incontinence in the home in a way that could only be done historically in the hospital. So that's the second area. And the third area for us is improving outcomes for people with chronic disease, right. whether or not that's been diabetes historically or today, conditions like peripheral vascular disease or cancer, chronic kidney disease, bringing new technologies to improve uh, outcomes uh, in, in people with chronic disease is our third major focus from an innovation perspective. Well, it's going to be amazing to see what happens in med tech in the next 10 years. I know, Tom, under your leadership at BD, it's just going to be a different world that we operate in, not just from COVID-19, but because of the speed of innovation. And no one's doing it better than uh, BD is right now. I appreciate that. It's, as you mentioned, Vince, before my predecessor, we went through a tremendous transformation under Vince's leadership, yeah. where we were kind of known as a syringe and a catheter company through a series of acquisitions that we did then. You know, we've now become much more of a, a move from being a med supplier company to a medical technology company, where right. we have those robotics, AI, informatics, and more advanced implantable devices and, and complex solutions that can be more impactful in helping patients and capitalizing on technology and applying it, you know, to the medical space. You know, today we have over 2000 software engineers and data scientists, as an example, helping to develop our products. All nine of our business units have smart device programs in their pipeline. And we're investing a billion dollars in R&D every year wow. behind the categories of innovations that I described. So it's, it's an exciting time to certainly be in the company. It's an exciting time to be in med tech, I, I'm always yeah. just amazed and impressed by what not just we're doing, but I'm amazed and impressed by what our, our peers are doing in the industry. There's just some great work happening by so many companies in, in the medical technology industry that, that are making it an impact more so than I think the medical technology industry has ever made before. Yeah. 
Tom, I was going to close with a question, and you you addressed this was about Vince, right? I mean, you took over BD from Vince, who was not only a great CEO but a great person as well. We had the good fortune of having him on the AdvaMed board for a number of years, and. Reflect on lessons you've learned from his leadership and things that you'll carry over to your time as CEO of BD. Yeah, we've been fortunate to be friends and, and colleagues, and, and we remain close friends today. I couldn't have asked for, for a better mentor in, in that perspective. And uh, again, someone that sometimes CEO transitions can be rocky or challenging. And I hear those stories. And Vince and I, again, we remain friends and, and get together pretty routinely as people who built a strong relationship over the time we work together. And I think for Vince, he's someone, as you mentioned, that as a leader, what I observed and learned from him were certainly his caring for people yeah. was effusive. Again, kind of in the principles in which we started and set mm. forth in the COVID pandemic. When people know that's a core principle that you hold, caring for the team, people will rise to the occasion for many, many things. And we saw that in the pandemic. And I think that was a principle that Vince always held very, very true and helped embed in the company as well. Uh, and then I think the other other one is very empowering, enabled space for new ideas. I think back to my, my own time as a leader working with Vince, uh, I'd taken over the medical segment and developed a strategy to acquire Care Fusion. And at that point in time, the company had been around for over 100, and, 100 years. We're over 165 right. years today. The largest acquisition we had done in our 100 plus year history was a $300 million acquisition. And I just moved in this role and was proposing a $12 billion acquisition. Wow. I still remember very clearly, I came in with our team and we proposed it. We got told no by the executive team. And then we proposed it a second time. And we got told no and told no why. And then we worked on it a bit more. It was six times. Wow. <laughs> we got told yes. Persistence. It was persistence. Now, it, it was as persistent in our team. I remember like on um, time five coming back in my office, my team, who was part of the medical segment, saying, Tom, why don't we give this up? Like, yeah, we've never done a deal this size. We keep getting told, no, why do we keep doing this? The team's getting frustrated. But we said, no, this is the right thing for the company. This is going to be transformational, which it was. But Vince created the space and the opportunity mm. to do that. And while there were other members on the team who weren't supportive of it, Vince always kept that aperture open and he wanted the, the challenges to be worked through to get alignment so that we got to the best answer. But he kept that open, right? He, right. he allowed that space for those new ideas to be had and not shut down. I think that's a great component of leadership that I saw in action there and, and experienced firsthand. Yeah. Well, that's great. Vince is a good friend, was a great chairman at AdvaMed when I first came on as CEO. And I've always admired his love of people. You mentioned that. His calm mannerism in dealing in crisis, which I, I've been through a couple with him. Just a steady, thoughtful, and brilliant guy. And so what a fortune it is to take over BD from a CEO like that and uh, have a smooth transition. So. Absolutely. Tom, let me close on, on a personal level just by saying thank you to you and the 70,000 associates of BD. My daughter's a type 1 diabetic. She's uh, been type 1 for 10, 11 years now. The number of BD needles and syringes that have come through our house in the past 10 years to keep her healthy and alive is amazing. The innovation of those needles to downsize in such a way that when we were giving her shots, it was much less painful than it could have otherwise been in managing the disease. And it's touched our lives for 10 years. And then we were all 
diagnosed with COVID, unfortunately, with the BD test. And so BD has hit our lives in a unique way. And on a personal level, we've seen the innovation in action and the value it provides to uh, a healthier life. And so as the Whitaker family, we thank you for all the work that BD has done and the 70,000 associates. uh, It's made a difference in our lives. We're grateful for that. Thank you for sharing that. I I know our team is going to look forward to hearing you share that. That's what inspires each and every person every day is is exactly that. So thank you for sharing that. And thanks for taking your time to join us today. It's been a great discussion. Okay. Thank you, Scott. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.